This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's great to be with you once again on a Saturday morning as we fight this continued battle with the pandemic of COVID, RSV, and the flu. And, and the flu has been a significant factor in really having people stay home from work and deal with the usual inconveniences, to say the least. But also, uh, we're starting to see more and more deaths. Uh, from the combined uh, combination of these infectious diseases. Uh, fortunately, here in Connecticut, the positivity rate continues to drop. It was 13% last week. It's about 12% this week. So it's slightly lower. And hopefully, there are people out there who are continuing to get the booster, uh, which is Im- important for us to note um, that we need to stay on top of this. Uh, among the people who may not have been um, uh, really part of this is the people who attended the Golden Globe Awards. So you see these award shows, everything's back, we're back, nobody's wearing a mask. And sure enough, all the various dignitaries who attended the Golden Globe Awards, many uh, now have COVID. And this really throws a a monkey wrench in the works because there are so many of these award shows and the same productions are nominated for these and now they cannot attend. I don't know what they did at the Golden Globes. If they screened people, had them test before coming, uh, probably not, uh, or they would have been able to detect this and and pick it up. Now, fortunately, uh, and hopefully nobody's seriously ill, but by the same token, it affects these other programs. It's like a domino effect and how it, how it has an effect on everybody. And, and it's interesting because when we look at the booster as we know it now, only 16% of, of Americans age five and older have gotten it. Uh, and only here's the, here's the real hard part to understand. Only 39% of those 65 and older, the most vulnerable group, to being hospitalized and dying have received the booster according to the CDC and uh, I'm hoping that that number is a little bit higher here in Connecticut but when you look at that national number it really tells us how susceptible we are to this virus and the virus mutating and, and growing you know also a lot of people still question the safety of the booster and the Pfizer COVID booster. And I just want to give an example of how safe it is. So early on in administering the booster, there was what we call a signal, a a, a blip or an indication in the data that it's possible that people over the age of 65 who got the booster might be more susceptible to 
having a stroke, an ischemic stroke. And that was based on 130 people who had a stroke within three weeks of getting the vaccine. And the sample size was 550,000. So when you're talking vaccine, that's a relatively small number compared to the millions and millions and millions of people who have gotten it. So what they were able to do is go in and do a deep dive into the data. And they use this vaccine safety data link system. And it looks at people all over the world who have gotten the booster in this case or the vaccine in general. And based on the larger scale research, they found that the risk of this happening is extremely low, if non-existent, because people over the age of 65 are more susceptible to stroke in general, forgetting about the use of the booster. So again, there's a way of looking at when a signal comes up, and it comes up pretty quickly, there's a way of investigating it. And that's why um, it's still felt that the recommendation remains the same, is that uh, there's no need to change that everyone six months and older should stay up to date on the coronavirus vaccinations, including those five and older who are eligible to receive the, boost, the updated booster. So the frustrating part is that we have a solution now to the problem. And again, the vaccine is there not to avoid getting it. People say, well, I got the vaccine. I still got COVID. But you didn't die. You didn't end up in the hospital. You don't, you are less susceptible to getting long-term COVID. And the symptoms more and more that we're hearing about this, people with persistent headache, people coming in with feeling that they're in a fog, uh, and, and some people, again, we, we determine it when it's lasted for months. And um, the last number I looked at was like 39% of people have some long-lasting symptoms after getting COVID. So really important to uh, keep an eye on this. Um, this day in medicine, uh, January 21st, 1733. Uh, Dr. Bernard Mandeville uh, died. Uh, he was actually Dutch, but uh, went to medical school uh, in Netherlands and then emigrated, emigrated to Great Britain, where he was a famous physician and philosopher. And one of the things he wrote the most an in-depth study in 1711 was a treatise on hypochondria. Now, we hear that all the time, and people say, well, I'm a hypochondriac, and things like that. But when we look at hypochondriasis, really, it's basically an excessive preoccupation with your own personal health. And it, it results in, you know, real distress, uh, because these thoughts that they're having are unexplained medically. And, and what happens is, and I... I hear this all the time from patients, but it's not necessarily gotten to the level where they're incapacitated. For example, they might have a, a normal body sensation. I mean, we all get sometimes aches and pains, but right away 
they interpret these things that uh, they're getting as abnormal. So this, if I get a headache, it has to be a brain tumor. And as a result of that, we'll start doing scans. They'll appear in the emergency room repeatedly uh, with problems, and it's costly. It's crippling for the people themselves, and it's crippling for our entire system of health care because we're spending so much money chasing these things down. What's also a problem is that when people find out, when we say to them, listen, there, we cannot find any organic, any basis for your problem, these same people will go out and seek out unsupported treatments that can be harmful. There are people out there willing to harm people um, and, and just for the sake of money. So we really have to address the problem. And it's interesting that in 1711, he points this out. So basically, hypochondriasis is a form of severe anxiety. And it needs to be addressed as a mental health problem. Because it's costing us all, in general, and it's certainly costing the individual who's affected by it in the fact that they cannot enjoy life, they cannot enjoy their loved ones. In many cases, uh, they can't function. They can't go to work. They can't be productive members of society. So, um, so when people use the term, I know a lot of people use it lightly uh, because of uh, some preoccupation with their health, but when it becomes excessive, to the point where someone is functionally impaired, uh, it's, it's important to take steps and encourage a, a loved one who may be experiencing this to seek out help and, and be able to help them and reach out for it. Um, it's certainly not something to be taken lightly. Uh, before we take a break, I just want to let everybody know we're going to have a guest in the second half of the show. Um, today it's going to be Dr. Anil McGee. Uh, Dr. McGee is a pulmonologist at Trinity Health of New England, and he specializes in a field of pulmonary care that I wasn't familiar with, interventional pulmonology, and he deals a lot with lung cancer. Uh, I think it's, and, and apropos to our guest today, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about cancer and cancer deaths. You know, the cancer deaths have been down now by 33% since 1991. So we are making a lot of progress in addressing cancer in general. Uh, we, we believe that that number since 1991 has been about 3.8 million cancer deaths that have been averted. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and we're going to talk to Dr. McGee about that. Um, but the increased survival rate of all cancers has increased for, from 49% in the 70s to now 68% for those diagnosed between 2012 and 2018. Um, that's a huge increase in that number, that five-year survival from cancer. So we're going to talk to uh, Dr. McGee about what's being done in the field of lung cancer and specifically his field of interventional pulmonology. 
If you have any questions for me, uh, either while we're on the air or during the week, you can reach out on info at alessimd.com. Specifically, if you have questions about lung cancer that I could address in the second half of the program with Dr. McGee, uh, you're very welcome to do so. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Give me a kiss to build a dream on. In my We're back on Healthy Rounds. We'll I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, a few topics uh, to discuss that I wanted to touch on is uh, one thing we've talked a lot about on the program is the fact that sadly... Uh, our longevity here in the United States is declining. Now, you would think with all these innovations we have, uh, our life expectancy would be going up. But it was 78, now it's 76. And it's interesting that it really prompts the question that we all have to think about is, uh, what do we want to do when we become older? So let me back up a little bit and explain what I mean. Um, basically, we all have to make personal decisions regarding what our quality of life should be regarding treatments. An example would be somebody with uh, severe dementia, where they don't recognize family members or, or others, is not someone you'd want to administer chemotherapy to. So we all have to make decisions. We make end-of-life decisions, whether we uh, want to be resuscitated or not. But also we have to make life decisions. So, for example, you know, when you get to be 80 years old and you're not very active, you may not want to have your anterior cruciate ligament repaired in your knee because you're not going to play basketball. But as we get older, we need to make decisions as to what we want to do. For example, a condition may arise and we may not want to be hospitalized. We might rather take our chances and have it treated at home where we could be around loved ones. I'm not talking about euthanasia. I don't want to be mistaken there. Um, but these are decisions that we'll want to make, especially as we get older. And I'd say beyond age 78 or into our 80s, whatever that age is for you and what you expect. Are you going to keep getting colonoscopies when you may not want to have treatment for colon cancer? Or, as I mentioned, various elective surgeries. If, if you tear a ligament in your shoulder um, and, you know, you, it does not hamper your quality of life, the things you want to do, doesn't make sense to have uh, surgery. So uh, we all have to make these personal decisions as we move through life. So it's important to think about them. Uh, you know, it's not like you have to have a, a living document, but it's something that you have to consider as you get older is, well, why am I going for these tests? Uh, you know, in, in a conversation with your doctor. But it's also a conversation you have with your family because what I've found in my experience as a physician, a lot of times these decisions are harder for the family than they are for the person themselves. For example, um, a patient uh, who clearly 
did not want to have surgery. He had a tumor in his hip and just said, listen, I don't want surgery. I don't want chemotherapy. And this, you know, set off these feelings of the family. Oh, Dad, you can't do that. You know, you're this, you're that. But that person had made a decision. So it's so hard for families to come to grips with that. But we have to, and we have to learn to respect the decisions of others, of our elders or other family members as to what they would like and not necessarily what we would like. Uh, So something um, for us to all think about as we advance in age. Um, There's a bill here in Connecticut I want to talk about of extending the hours of liquor service in certain locations. Uh, When I looked at it, uh, it it looked like every location to me uh, more than anything. They uh, said they want to expand it uh, in Bridgeport, Danbury, Hartford, New Haven, New London, Norwalk, Norwalk, Stamford, Waterbury, West Hartford. So sounds like everywhere. So here's the story. Right now, uh, restaurants and other locations cannot serve liquor beyond 2 a.m., on Fridays and Saturdays, and beyond 1 a.m. on Sunday through Thursday. No good happens when people are intoxicated. I just want to sum that up for you folks. And certainly nothing good is happening when you need another drink at 4 a.m. So with that, what are we doing? Right? We keep hearing about wrong-way crashes. It's amazing how many of those wrong-way crashes that occur every Sunday morning. I mean, I'm really tired of waking up to this. Every Sunday morning, I'm hearing about some disaster with a wrong-way crash, and someone was intoxicated. I, I can't even imagine the fear you have when you're getting on a highway and someone is coming the wrong way and you've got nowhere to go. And we recently saw that in one of our elected officials. So, again, this is really bad thinking. I don't know what elected officials are doing, where they come up with this, but they're endangering all of us. Okay? I I just don't see the purpose of it. So, if you have a chance, we have a Democratic representative there, Christopher Rosario, who's uh, down, I think, in Bridgeport, who's promoting this. Um, Forget it. It's the wrong thing to do. Let's put it behind us and let's keep people here in the state of Connecticut healthy and alive when we're faced with so many disasters on the highway now. Vehicles move. Uh, vehicles are bigger, faster, stronger, uh, and, and we're seeing deaths on our highways. We've got, to, we've got to straighten this problem out. The whole problem of we have alcohol and intoxication and we have wrong way crashes. Um, amidst other uh, traffic disasters. So um, with that, uh, I think we need to stand strong here uh, and just shut this down uh, as quickly as we can. It has been shut down in the past. I'm hoping it's it's not going to get anywhere now. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Anil McGee. Dr. McGee is a pulmonary specialist. He specializes in lung care and critical care medicine at Trinity Health of New England. And he's going to chat with us about interventional pulmonology. So I think we're all going to learn something in this second half of the program. Again, if you have questions, you could reach me at info 
at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest today, Dr. Anil McGee. Uh, Dr. McGee, as I mentioned, is a critical care medicine specialist. He's a pulmonologist specializing in lung diseases and is at Trinity Health of New England. And he did a fellowship in a field that I was not familiar with uh, until setting up this interview uh, called interventional pulmonology. I understand I have a personal connection with Dr. McGee since he and my daughter were interns together at Hartford Hospital. And it's always great for me to see young physicians who come to Connecticut or stay in Connecticut. We've had a problem here in Connecticut attracting young physicians. Um, We are a crisis state when it comes to medical malpractice and frivolous lawsuits. Um, And it's been tough to attract young people to come here. We have a high cost of living. So um, it's great that Dr. McGee has uh, come back to Connecticut um, to practice. Anil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Lessing. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Uh, Anil, let's talk a little bit uh, about how you got to where you were. I mean, in terms of uh, education, medical school training, um, how do you get to be a pulmonologist? Sure. It's, it is a long trajectory. Um, I was fortunate to stay in Connecticut for my medical school training. During medical school, I did two additional years of research, uh, one year in a epidemiology lab <clears throat> looking at breast cancer patients, so that sort of piqued my interest in oncology. Then um, after that, deciding that I wanted to pursue internal medicine for my residency training, I matched at the University of Connecticut, which was three years. Then I was chosen to do a chief medical resident year, which uh, is much more with teaching the current residents, so that was an additional year. Then through my experiences during residency, I wanted to further specialize, and pulmonary critical care was what I was most interested in and had a passion for. So it's another matching process, so I matched again at the University of Connecticut, which was an additional three years of training. Then uh, towards the end of my pulmonary critical care training, I had exposure to interventional pulmonology in which uh, this subspecialty really cares for a lot of patients with lung cancer. And given my interest in oncology already uh, and and, uh, procedural medicine, I thought this would be the best fit for me. So I was lucky to have matched at the Harvard Combined Interventional Pulmonology Program uh, at Mass General uh, Hospital in Boston, as well as Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And then after that, uh, I'm, I'm a full-fledged attending at St. Francis Hospital, where I've been seeing patients. So this has been a long road, um, for sure, and your dedication is certainly noticed in, in treating cancer. Um, you know, we, we hear about cancer deaths are down now over the past 30 uh, years by 33% since 1991, something I talked about a little bit earlier in the program. But where are our stats on lung cancer? Where, where do we stand? Are we getting better? Um, how big a problem are we dealing with right now? Sure. Uh, it's still a big problem, but uh, I am happy to say we are getting better, and we can go into that in a little bit. But in terms of new cases of lung cancer every year in the U.S., 
and this is coming from the American Cancer Society, they published some recent results. So for 2023, we're going to be looking at approximately 240,000 new cases. Half will be men and half will be women. Now, in terms of deaths, and I know you've uh, you uh, interviewed a pulmonologist a couple years ago. He's a good friend and colleague. And at that time, uh, he had quoted about 140,000 deaths per year from lung cancer. We're now decreased to about 127,000 deaths per year for lung cancer. So it's decreased, but it's still a very, very high number. And um, lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in the U.S., and really accounts for about one in five of all cancer deaths. And if you take together breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer, the number of lung cancer deaths from lung cancer itself dwarfs those three. So it's still a big issue, and and, uh, I'm glad we're having a chance to talk about it. Uh, what's been our biggest success? Has it been uh, really uh, banning smoking and making it hard for people to smoke in certain locations? Um, uh, do you think that's the issue, that that has had the biggest uh, effect on cutting back those numbers over the years? I agree. It, it's really been multifactorial. And as we've learned more about smoking and its connection to lung cancer and the new laws placed by our government and trying to decrease where people could smoke. Also, the pricing of uh, cigarettes has significantly increased, which makes it less attractive for a lot of uh, people that had been smoking. But you're right, smoking cessation counseling, not only from our physicians, our healthcare workers, but also from a government uh, standpoint, has significantly reduced uh, uh, its connection with lung cancer. So I totally agree. I think lung cancer awareness um, the provisions that's been placed with uh, smoking cessation, I think, um, has made a huge impact. And I think the other part of this is I think we do have a lot of great physicians, whether it's primary care physicians, um, nursing staff, uh, pulmonologists, emergency medicine doctors that really talk about lung cancer when they're approached with a patient that has a suspicious finding and really stressing the importance of smoking cessation. So I think it's the combination of both. When we uh, when we look at lung cancer, now we've always seen it in older people who, you know, really became addicted to it. But I'm hearing that we're starting to see it again in in younger f- folks. Have you started to see uh, lung cancer in a younger population? Uh, yes, we do see lung cancer in younger patients. The average age for a person with we find lung cancer and it's about 70 years old. So it typically happens in older adults, as you mentioned, sort of greater than 65 years of age. However, there are cases where you have lung cancer in non-smokers that are less than 45 years old. And uh, even starting my practice recently here in the greater Hartford area, I have seen quite a number of young people with lung cancer. Where have we, you know, when we look at, at the diagnosis uh, and treatment of lung cancer, let's let's hit the diagnosis first. What's the best way to diagnose lung cancer? Is it routine chest x-ray? Uh, how often should people have a chest x-ray? We've had people on in the past uh, who advocate for the low-dose CT scan of the lungs um, to screen for lung cancer. Uh, what's the best way to screen and diagnose lung cancer? 
Sure. The, the best way is to really if, uh, to assess if patients have risk factors. So the United States Preventative Service Task Force uh, made some recommendations in terms of lung cancer screening. So if you are of the age of uh, 50 years old to 80 years old, you have a 20-pack year smoking history. One pack year is equivalent to one pack per day for one year. If you're a current smoker or if you quit within the past 15 years, you get a low-dose CT scan, which is different from a regular CT scan because there's much less radiation exposure in that scan. And you would get yearly scans to assess if you have any suspicious spots in your lungs, which need to be further worked up to see if they're cancer. So this low-dose cancer screening program is probably the best tool we have. Also, smoking cessation counseling, so preventing somebody from smoking is probably the best way as well. But the combination of the two has made quite a difference. When we talk of lung cancer, there are a lot of different types of lung cancer. Can you just briefly tell us what are the different types uh, of lung cancer uh, we see in the population? Sure. There are two really main types. One's called non-small cell lung cancer. The other type is small cell lung cancer. And I won't go too much into the specifics, but non-small cell cancer is the most common type of cancer that we detect. And the treatment is much different than if you have a small cell cancer. So when we do biopsies of uh, tumors or uh, spots that are suspicious of tumors, it's really important to look at the genetic makeup of the tumor because that's going to ultimately portend the type of treatment the patient's going to get. So those are the two main types, but the non-small cell lung cancer is the most common. Uh, Is uh, either one easier to treat? Uh, uh, small cell is better uh, better response to chemotherapy, but can often reoccur. Non-small cell lung cancer, there are much more uh, genetic markers that we know about. So uh, when we do a biopsy, uh, we rely on the pathologist to look at the molecular, uh, not only the uh, macroscopic appearance of the tumor. And once we know the molecular, so the genetics of the tumor, we can properly treat as well. Let's get into interventional pulmonology. What is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I get asked that quite a bit because it's a relatively newer field. Over the past 20 to 30 years, it's really burgeoned, and I sort of liken it to uh, interventional cardiology. So back in the day, um, a lot of the interventional cardiology procedures were performed by cardiothoracic surgery. And then the advent of interventional cardiology happened where they perform um, majority, if not all now, the minimally invasive cardiology procedures. Same way for uh, interventional pulmonology. Uh, prior to its advent, thoracic surgeons, so surgeons that did their surgical training and they specialized pretty much in the thorax, they would do majority of all the procedures, whether it's invasive or minimally invasive. With the advent of interventional pulmonology, we have now taken over sort of really all the minimally invasive procedures of the lung. So whether that's biopsy of the lung itself, biopsy of the lining of the lung, uh, or even esophageal procedures. So if patients have lymph nodes that are around the esophagus, we can biopsy uh, those as well using a bronchoscope. 
So the primary tools, if we're correct, in interventional pulmonology would be uh, a scope um, as well as a needle, I guess, um, if you're doing needle biopsies and things such as that. Am I correct? That's correct. So the bronchoscope is uh, sort of like a long string with the camera at the end. And additionally, it has working channels where you can put out tools. So when we're trying to do biopsies, we go in the airway. So often there's a tube helping patients breathe for these type of procedures. The tube is placed past the vocal cords and into the windpipe or trachea. And I go through that tube within the airway and a biopsy, whether it's a lymph node or a, a suspicious nodule or lung mass, through the airway. So there's no cutting open of the chest. Everything's minimally invasive through the airway. Um, so let's talk about it a little bit. Um, when uh, you're treating this, is it specifically for lung cancer or are there other conditions um, where it's helpful to use uh, interventional pulmonology? The vast majority of patients I see are, 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 are for concern for lung cancer, whether that's tumor within the airway, a spot in the lung that's suspicious for a tumor and they need a biopsy, as well as for staging. But I do see quite of, um, uh, I do see a, a other patient population with a whole host of diseases that they need our help in terms of diagnosis or treatment. For example, patients that smoke and have COPD and have emphysema, which is destroyed lung from uh, smoking, there are newer procedures now to help these patients breathe a little bit easier. Prior to the past couple years, we had no procedures to help with this. We relied pretty much on oxygen or inhalers to help with patients' breathing. But now uh, there are newer techniques to basically collapse the bad part of the lungs that's not really getting any oxygen or carbon dioxide exchange and diverting that, um, the oxygen to the better parts of the lung. So there are newer procedures to help these type of patients. And now what's the biggest obstacle um, to what you do to interventional pulmonology? I mean, where is it? usually uh, the biggest obstacle I hear is uh, getting insurance to pay for something. But um, uh, what's the biggest obstacle for you in, in your practice? Is it equipment? Um, I, do you use robotics and things such as that? Sure. Um, probably the hardest thing is really trying to get the patient quickly through the system. So often it's not really straightforward where they come to see me and I, I find a suspicious nodule, I do the biopsy and I get them to where they need to go, whether that's surgery, whether that's oncology for a treatment with chemotherapy. Often what will happen is patients will have sort of a pinball effect. They see their primary care doctor. The primary care doctor um, will then send them to maybe the oncologist first because the spot is suspicious for a cancer. The oncologist then sees the patient that needs tissue to figure out if it is a cancer or not. So then they end up seeing me. So there's a time lag between when the patient is first diagnosed with the spot in their lung, which needs to get further investigated, and by the time that I, they see me or whether they have a biopsy. So my biggest struggle is trying to get these patients quickly through the system. So from when they're diagnosed with a spot in their lung, they quickly get a diagnosis, meaning a tissue diagnosis, to figure out what it is. And if it is a cancer, get them quickly to treatment. And it's important that we diagnose these spots earlier on when they're smaller 
because when these uh, nodules are smaller and if they are cancer, they tend to be a lower stage of cancer. And a lower stage of cancer has better outcomes and has curative surgeries or treatments that are available to these patients. So trying to uh, manage patients and get them quickly to be seen and biopsied and treated has been my sort of the biggest obstacle that I've noticed in my short career as an attending. But I, that's one of the big things that I've been working with and working on at St. Francis and also for the greater Hartford community. I do use robotic bronchoscopy. And robotic bronchoscopy is newer technology that will allow us to biopsy these spots in the lung uh, that are hard to get or really far out um, on the sort of the periphery of the lung. And the reason why it would be important to make these biopsies sort of early on, like I said, if we can biopsy them early on, these type of spots, if they are cancer, can get curative treatments like surgery, radiation, like cyber knife therapy, which is a newer technology, or even chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, when you look at your job, what's the most rewarding part of it? We've talked about the obstacles, but uh, what's the most rewarding part? Uh, when somebody's diagnosed with a lung cancer, whether it's by me or a colleague or by interventional radiology, it's a very stressful situation, not only for the patient, but the patient's family, their loved ones. So what I take pride in and what I enjoy most is to be able to make a diagnosis or <clears throat> a treatment for the patient and really get them quickly to where they need to be. Um, and that's what I find most rewarding. And um, it, when, when I first started, um, it's hard to see somebody struggling not only with the anxiety of having a spot in their lung, but not being able to do it. Now, as an inter interventional pulmonologist, I can make the diagnosis or potentially treat. And if I make the diagnosis, I can quickly get them to a surgeon where they could potentially remove that spot if it's small enough. So that's been sort of the most rewarding part of my career so far. How about uh, new techniques? All right, so we said you're using a, a robot, and we have interventional pulmonology. I think, obviously, this is going to be a field that, that's going to progress and become more commonplace. But um, are there new technologies coming to the treatment of lung cancer? Yeah, um, which is really, really exciting. So there are a couple things that we're trying to work at here at, at St. Francis and in the Hartford area and things that are sort of in the pipeline. So the first thing that we're trying to do here is really expedite the process of a suspicious nodule being biopsied and removed at the same time. So uh, often what happens now is if patients have a spot, I typically biopsy them. If it ends up being a cancer, then I refer them to a thoracic surgeon to remove the cancer. Now, um, with, the, with collaborating and having a multidisciplinary approach, not only with the thoracic surgeon, but with the, the oncology team, if we could diagnose, treat on the same day or a single anesthesia event, that would be incredible. So that would prevent the patient from being under general anesthesia more than once. So that's something we're trying to work on right now here at St. Francis is have, if I, if I find a suspicious nodule, I can biopsy, I can mark the nodule, make the surgery easier for the surgeon, um, and then the surgeon can re remove that spot all in one anesthesia event. So that's one thing we're working on here right in the Hartford area. 
things down the pipeline uh, include something called ablation. Now, for patients that are too sick to undergo surgery or too sick to undergo uh, chemotherapy or radiation, if there's a way to potentially kill the tumor bronchoscopically, that would be a game changer. Now, this technology was recently FDA approved, these ablation catheters. It's currently going to be trialed with the robotic bronchoscope. And the reason why it's being trialed with the robotic bronchoscope because the scope is very precise and there's a lot of stability to it. So when you're at a spot that's concerning for a cancer or after you've confirmed it's a cancer, you can put out a catheter through this uh, working channel of this robot, sneak it into this a tumor, and it will cook the tumor. So this is a, potentially going to be another type of treatment we could uh, offer to our patients that can't undergo whether it's chemotherapy or surgery just because they're too sick. Anil, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Uh, this has been fascinating and something I know our listeners have learned because I've certainly learned um, from spending time with you. And uh, thank you for everything you do for our community. And thanks for coming back to Connecticut. We appreciate having you. It's good to be back, and thanks for having me. Thanks. With that, we're going to wrap up today's show. I want to uh, take time to thank Kevin Corza, who's been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, if you missed any part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast by going to odyssey.com. If you have questions during the week, you can reach out to me at info at alessimd.com. Next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.